Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, conversations about racism pathways to systemic change. I am so glad that you have joined us this evening. To get us started, I would like to welcome Reverend Stacy Hilton. She is the co-spiritual leader at Las Vegas Center for Spiritual Living. Reverend Stacy. Thank you, Will, Pastor Will. I appreciate you having me do the opening prayer. So if it's comfortable for everyone, let's just begin by closing our eyes if, it's, if, if that feels comfortable. And let's just take a moment to connect. As we use our breath to allow that which has gone on before this very moment to be right where it is in the past. And that which takes place before this moment, let that be where it is in the future. And knowing and believing in that one power, that one presence, that one essence that is called by many names. I call it God, infinite spirit, universal intelligence, and divine love. Its nature is peace, love, power, joy, life, and light. That presence loved itself so much that it wanted to express through each of us here on this very call and beyond. That power, that source that created each is infinitely intelligent. And each of us has in our makeup that same essence of peace, power, joy, love, and light. I'm one with this presence and I'm one with each and every person on this call and beyond. Each of us is here for the purpose to express our own unique gifts and talents to provide joy to ourselves and to all life. I declare and know that each of us knows the importance of the idea of practicing peace and compassion, of being love and bringing light to a world that could use illumination. It is ours to do. And I know and believe that each one of us is up for this opportunity. It is a time to realize our oneness. And for those of us that know better, to speak up from a boldness we have not seen the likes of ever before. It is time to realize that the divine plan is diversity. I realize that oneness is not sameness and that I am not my brother's and sister's keeper, but I am my brother and my sister. I move forward, looking forward to this evening, knowing that the brilliance, the energy of love, the power on this call brings about that shift that moves us to the tipping point of curing this dreaded disease called racism. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the people that have taken their time out to put together such a wonderful, wonderful, event. Grateful for the moderator, the panelists, the sponsors, all the people tuning in. And, that, and I know that this reveals truth and creates a world that works for all. And so with this, I let go. I let it be. I release this word to that universal mind, which always makes my word manifest. And together we say, and so it is. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Simply beautiful. Thank you so much for that. There's a, a magic already happening on the call tonight. There's an energy that is connecting us all across these miles that separate us physically, but energetically, we are absolutely connected. We are here with a purpose to create pathways to systemic change, substantial change, lasting, sustainable change. And so I would like to introduce now Reverend Leonard Jackson. He is a member of the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada's board. He is an associate minister at First AME Church 
and he is the executive director of Faith Organizing Alliance. So Reverend Jackson, please. Thank you, thank you. And to everyone that has joined us here this evening, the voices of faith in Southern Nevada and beyond, we rise up to address racial issues. The tensions, divisions, and injustices that currently beset America are symptoms of a long-standing illness here in our country. The nation is afflicted with a deep spiritual disorder manifested in rampant materialism and widespread moral decay and deeply ingrained racial prejudice. But these issues, these evils, will be eradicated by the love in our hearts as we come together. Example, the National Spiritual Assembly of the Beha'is of the United States from the Quran tells us that God will not change the condition of a people unless they change what is in their heart. And the scripture from the Christian endeavor tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. That's the first commandment. But the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's when things will change here in our community. As we align ourselves with those seeking justice for the death of George Floyd and countless others, and I just can't stand another death, senseless death in our community. So may all our members of our community with conscience, whether you be religious or not, may we stand firm in our active, compassionate opposition to the virus of systemic racism, the virus of opposition to all that is wrong within our community, the virus of homophobia, the virus of xenophobia that discriminates against any member of our common humanity. I say to you today, may we all pledge to stand up, speak up, and march together until all God's children can shout together that we're free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. So march on, my children. Let's put our hearts together, our minds together, and make a difference here this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have a great pleasure here this evening. The pleasure of introducing someone that is personally very dear to me. Someone that has set the example for our community, not just here in Nevada or the state or the country, but the world knows who this lady is because she was born and raised here in Nevada, Las Vegas, of all places. She served two terms as Attorney General for the state of Nevada. Beginning in November of 2016, keep this in mind that she's the first woman from Nevada and the first Latina ever to be elected to the United States Senate. I could go on and tell you what she has accomplished, but she has not only talked the talk, she walks the walk, and she makes the difference here in our community. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you all 
the one and the only Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Come on, my daughter. Give up. <laughs> Reverend Jackson, always inspiring. Thank you so much for that incredible introduction. Reverend Stacy. thank you for the prayer. Uh, and all of you that are participating, I cannot uh, thank you enough, not only for inviting me to help kick this off, but uh, for the conversation that is going to take place today to, to really bring our community together to work for the greater good. I know everyone here wants to make sure that we keep Nevada safe. We treat them with compassion and dignity, and we ensure that uh, they can seek justice and redress for any harms that they're suffered. And, and what happened to George Floyd and countless black and brown Americans is unacceptable. Uh, as a country, we cannot let this continue. And that starts with a real reckoning with the systemic racism that is older than our republic. I don't know about all of you, but I have been inspired by the millions of Americans who are demanding justice. And like all of you here today, over the past months, I've shared in their anger, their heartbreak, and their frustration. The fundamental change we need will require us all to work together to achieve it, and that starts with listening. Now, listening is hard. It demands that we put ourselves aside and invest in the truth of others' experiences. Listening challenges our preconceptions, and it calls on us to be non-judgmental and non-defensive. And it's especially important for the people in positions of power, from lawmakers to law enforcement, to listen and be sensitive to the demands of the communities that they belong to. You know, I've convened these conversations on race in America, like the one you're having today with my own staff, with Black community leaders here in Nevada, with families and individuals impacted by police violence, with the legal community, and with our sheriffs and chiefs of police. And these conversations are crucible. They are the crucible for policies that will begin to root out the web of systemic racism in this country. So I just want to say to all of you, thank you for taking the time to listen and to come together. Our success depends on our ability to stand with one another and to use the power of our unity to overcome those forces holding us back from building that more equitable future for everyone. So thank you uh, for the forum today. And uh, I can't stay for the entire conversation, but I just so appreciate uh, the effort that you've put into this and it can only be better for our community here in Nevada. So thank you. Thank you so much, Senator. We are so blessed to have you leading the charge on this, just championing goodness for our community, for our state, and ultimately for our world. You are an exceptional leader, and we want to just thank you for your time, for your effort, and your work. We are truly grateful. Thank you. Next, I would like to introduce a very special person. He is someone that I look up to, that I admire, I appreciate, not just because he has the best mustache in the world, but because he really leads such transformative work in our, our community and in our state. He is a member of the Multicultural Advisory Board at Las Vegas Metro Police Department and the chair of the Las Vegas Mayor's Faith Initiative, here to share the tremendous 
advancements happening in our city through RECAP, Rebuilding Every City Around Peace, I'd like to welcome Pastor Troy Martinez. Thank you, Will. Appreciate that. Thank you, Senator Cortez, uh, for your comments. And uh, I really do count it a privilege to be able to introduce uh, Captain Sasha Larkin here in just a moment. And what I was asked to share a little bit, and this is a very um, fitting topic for uh, Captain Larkin to address when it comes to change. Uh, what we've seen over the last 15 years working directly with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department is true uh, systemic change and effective policies that were put into practice uh, based on the interactions with the community. And I just pray that everybody would have an open heart and, and, a, and an open mind to what she's having to say. I know right, right now we're in a difficult time and law enforcement is the face of government and the face of in our country. And so they seem to be getting the brunt of some of the um, hostilities and the anger. And we understand that there's some, some uh, people in any culture, whether it's law enforcement, the church world, the business world, uh, that will do wrong. And, and, and that's you know, gonna happen because we're human beings. But the fact is, I can personally tell you that I have witnessed uh, uh, Captain Larkin out in the community. I've seen her attend funerals uh, where young black men and young brown men have been killed, sometimes children. Uh, and she stood there with us, uh, consoling the families, working together as part of the recap model. I've seen that the police department, uh, when we request for them to come out, when there's a situation that looks like it's going to uh, escalate into violence because of racial tensions or because there's two opposing groups, sometimes it's families, sometimes it's tagging crews, sometimes it's gangs, uh, and instead of just using force, uh, they take the community and, and partner and collaborate so that force is unnecessary at that time. And it's, it's much better for all of us to resolve things in a peaceful manner. Uh, one of my favorite uh, heroes and, and uh, Baptist preachers, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said a house divided cannot stand. And so we have to bring unity and we need to listen uh, as, as Senator Cortez said, we list, it's, it's hard to listen, but I, I again ask that you would uh, listen very carefully. And I want you to all, I always encourage others that don't understand police or policing or law enforcement, that you have to understand that there's a real person inside of that uniform. And knowing Captain Larkin, and she has a wonderful family, um, she, she, most people don't know that she, she gave birth to twin girls, beautiful children, and she's just a wonderful mother. And when she showed me the picture of her twins, and I walked out of the headquarters that day and I thought, my God, she gets up every day, puts on a uniform, has to wear a, a, a bulletproof vest, and goes out there to protect strangers when she could be home with her children. And most people, they want to be safe home with their children. And so we need people like Captain Larkin. And the other thing I'd like to say about her is she's very inclusive. And I grew up in Los, in Los Angeles, been here 23 years, but in LA, it's a melting pot. Every type of race, every type of culture, every type of background. So we were used to that. But it takes effort for a police department to really 
learn about the different cultures. And she took it upon herself to make sure everybody was included. And I admire that. And so there's some things that most people don't know. And uh, it, it's uh, hard for law enforcement to toot their own horn. It seems self-serving, but I can tell you and testify, and I'm a man of faith and a man of God, so I can't lie or I don't go to heaven. And so I'd just like to introduce Captain Sasha Larkin from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Thank you for your, your service. We appreciate you greatly. Thank you, Pastor Troy. I feel so blessed to have had my introduction from you. I think that we've been friends well over a decade now. And I think the exciting part is we've gotten to grow together, right? We've, you've grown Recap. I've gotten to grow some of the programs for the LVMPD. And, you know, we've definitely gone through some huge growing pains as a community, as a police department. But I'll tell you one thing, Pastor Troy. Uh, I think your faith has been strong and steady in alignment with your daughter and your wife. And I think that the community knows that. And there's not a place around the world that we haven't uh, been able to brief recap. And people go, wait, you're doing what? And the pastors come out at two in the morning for free? And people are blown away, right? Because it's a commitment like no other. And, you know, you started that. And I remember with the first time that it got briefed to us, people told us we're crazy. They said, it'll never work. They said, there's no way you can get these pastors to come in day in and day out to a violent scene, like you said, a homicide scene and get them to do this work. But not only do you guys come out at two and three in the morning and never uh, bat an eye, but you're on some of the most horrific scenes that we ever had. And when we explain recap, just so everybody knows, uh, reclaiming every community, every city around peace, right? You know, the way we explain it to cops or to community members so they understand, we say in very simple terms, you know, back in the 80s or 90s, if a blood killed a crip, what happens next? And everybody kind of thinks about it and it goes, well, a crip then kills a blood. Right, what happens next? Retaliation, retaliation. And before you know it, you have bodies stacked up and senseless hatred and violence continuing and ongoing. And police are just in now in a reactionary measure. And all they're doing is coming in and trying to figure out after the fact. But what Pastor Troy has instituted is a program that gets us in front of the violence. It gives us a stop stick. Yes we, yes, we might not prevent that first murder, but we're absolutely, without a doubt, gonna prevent the second and third. And Pastor Troy, help me out, but I can't remember in the last eight years, the last time we've had a retaliatory shooting. Can you? It's almost impossible to, to find a retaliatory shooting in Las Vegas at this time. And, and the homicide solvability rate that it, it increased because the community yes. began to trust the police department because they were out there working together. You're, you're exactly right. And just to, um, to build on Pastor Troy's point, one thing before I move off, I think it's really important that the community understands, listen, we all understand the heartache associated with homicide, right? Somebody loses a family member, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter. You, you can't even put those into words, the pain that that causes someone, that it causes a community. But I want to offer you guys another way to look at this as well. When you look at jurisdictions across the country right now, there's a validated that study shows one single homicide can cost a jurisdiction between 10 and $19 million. And that's a loss of income. You're looking at hospital expenses. It's criminal justice expenses for incarceration, prosecution, prison. It's the loss of business, the vibrancy in a community because the crime rate, 
loss of housing, value of housing that these agencies are struggling with right now. And the uptick in violence that you see is due to lack of proactive policing. So he's right. The fact that we can get in front of these retaliatory shootings and prevent homicides is so huge. It's paramount right now. And the programming that he's talking about and that he instituted over a decade ago is community partnership based. And that's the magic that we want to talk about here today. So thank you, Troy, for introducing me. Thank you for being here. Listen, uh, I show up to this panel humble and, and totally honored that you would ask me to be a part of it. And my dear friend, Latoya Holman, I think is the one that uh, volunteered me and she knows that there's nothing I love more than to talk about the finest police department in the country and to talk about the most incredible community in the country. And the fact that we've had the opportunity to blend these two things together. And Pastor Troy is right. Uh, Los Angeles is a melting pot of community, but we have become that. We are now, we are religions from all over the world. We're one of the largest receivers of refugees in the world. We have all of the major religions housed here. And what, how lucky are we to be growing in all of these aspects? You know, I've been a part of policing with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for 20, just over 22 years. And in that time, our community has grown. I mean, just look at the Las Vegas Strip, how much it changes every day. And on top of that, you have almost 3 million people in our valley, 42 million visitors and growing before COVID. And all of these incredible assets, we have the sixth largest police, I mean, police department, fifth largest school district. We have one of the busiest airports, all of these things that contribute to the vibrancy that we experience here. And a lot of people look at that and say, why would you want to police a community with all of these things that could go wrong? But we look at it and go, what an opportunity to create first responders and, and people that will be on our team, on our side, on, on, a, on a level where they understand suspicious activity, where they don't want to stand for violence. And if we take the time to integrate those communities, not only with us, the police department, but we build a platform for them to integrate with each other, then we remove the barriers that create isolation. And I'll leave you with this on my intro, something that I believe in the depths of my heart. Uh, there's a man, his name is Christian Piccolini. He was one of the very first uh, members in Chicago that was a part of what they called the hater movement uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And he talks about the fact that there's three things that people long for, and I believe this wholeheartedly, community, identity, and purpose. And if you break it down to the intricacies of law enforcement, let's say the fire department, military, and let's say um, gang members, and even terrorism, every one of those five groups, all of us, we all long for community, identity, and purpose. And I promise you this, listeners, we will find it. We will find those three things somewhere. The question is, how can we, the police, we, the community, give young people the opportunity to make positive decisions for community identity and purpose, rather than going down a negative one, a violent path, right? And that's the conversation we're talking about because that's what makes policing and community more integrative, is when we work together to reach a common goal. And that's what I'm here to hopefully share with you guys tonight, how the LVMPD and your valley is trying to integrate that in a collaborative effort. Captain Larkin, thank you so much. You said so many important things there. 
I, I really appreciate your approach to this subject. And you're right, we have such an incredible city. I am so honored to be a part of the Las Vegas community and we really do touch the world. And the work that you are doing and the department really is a model for what can be. Of course, we've got a long way to go. We all acknowledge that. And we've come so very far. So thank you for your efforts. Our next panelist is none other than Jose Melendres. He is the executive director at the UNLV School of Public Health Office of Community Partnerships. He's responsible for coordinating and for building partnerships that support students and faculty initiatives, including working with community-based organizations and public health agencies to support internships, research, and educational programming. Jose works with the Center for Health Disparities Research and the American Indian Research and Education Center, supporting faculty directives, community engagement, student advocacy, research, programming, and development. He supports the development and implementation of recruitment strategies designed to increase the diversity of students in the School of Public Health. Jose is a founding member and currently serves as the chair for the Nevada Minority Health and Equity Coalition. We are so honored to have you with us here on the panel tonight. Take it away, Jose. Thank you, Will. And uh, just let me say what an honor it is to be here with everybody tonight and uh, everybody that's listening in. Thank you for making this time. Um, you know, I think as I thought about it when I received the invitation to be a part of this panel and, and thinking about all the folks who are sharing the stories and and Pastor Martinez and everybody who's here tonight, uh, and the captain, um, just an incredible group to be a part of. And, you know, I think what I want to share in my introduction, um, you know, when we think about race, race and racial justice and racial injustice and, and, and thinking about the systems that support that and the systems that need to be broken down um, as we move forward. And, you know, and I've heard it a couple of times tonight already about what the community and what a community can be in the community we choose to live in and what part we choose to be in that community. And, you know, for me, uh, when I do this kind of work and I, and I have the honor and the privilege to speak to a lot of young people about choices, about decisions, about pathways that they might take that will impact the rest of their life. And, um, and having started uh, my career, I've been in Nevada now since 19, gosh, since 1990. Uh, it's been home uh, minus six years at the University of Michigan for for graduate work, but um, but it's been home. And, and what I want to share with everybody tonight is when we talk about when we think about who we are and when we talk about racism and race and how we culturally identify. Um, you know, if if somebody if you if any of you had met me um, during the decade of the 1990s uh, when I was much younger. Uh, you would have known my work and you would have known me as far as a community activist and, and advocate for different issues, but those issues were always Latino-based. And, and I don't apologize for that. You know, uh, Latinos, like every other group, uh, face their challenges and, 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 and the turmoil when you talk about race and how it impacts different communities. But if you had known me, you would have known me to be all about Latino issues and Latino activists. And what I am so grateful for uh, when I look at my life and the experiences that I've had, um, the opportunity to go to Michigan and, and go to graduate school out there, um, my training is as a social worker. And um, when I was doing my, my work, uh, every social worker is required to, to complete so many hours of uh, what we call practicum or internships. And I did my work in the city of Detroit. And I was part of 
coalition building efforts there around healthy lifestyles. And, you know, in, in Detroit, where you had huge gang problems, you had uh, food insecurity, you had home insecurity, you had um, just multiple issues of a 300-year-old city who was on the verge of, of falling apart. And, and you know, and, and what I learned there, what I learned there was the richness of diversity the richness of being able to work with different people from different from different backgrounds from different histories from different lived experiences when you open yourself up to that uh when you open yourself up to that kind of communication to that kind of learning i think i heard somebody say to that kind of listening um and and you know because it's critical for each of us to be able to tell our stories um, but it's more critical for us to be able to listen and learn from other people's stories and doesn't matter what race, what color, what, you know, whatever they are, uh, gender, that we are always willing to listen, willing to learn. And I remember upon returning, upon returning to Las Vegas, cause I always knew home was Las Vegas and we were going to come back after our graduate studies there coming home. And I was doing a presentation to a bunch of young people from the Andre Agassi school. And this, I think she was maybe a seventh grade, a young African-American woman, um, I mean, young lady, bright as can be. She hit me with this question. And that it just brought everything, it brought everything to fruition for me. She asked me, so you went off to a, you went off to a big fancy school in, uh, in Michigan. And what did you learn? And I know she was going with this because, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the education I got in the, at the Michigan School of Social Work. Um, it was the experience and the education that I, that I got working in the community, working in the city of Detroit. And I told her, I said, well, you know what, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, um, I don't think you're asking me about this $40,000 I just spent on getting a two-year master's degree in social work because I'll be lucky if I make that kind of money when I, when I become a professional social worker. I said, so what I learned was that when I left Nevada, I left as a Latino, and everything in my world was Latino, Chicano, Latino politics, Chicano politics. But when I came back to Las Vegas, um, what I realized is that I was coming back as a person of color. And that each of us have our stories, each of us have our lived experiences, and that we need to appreciate, we need to appreciate those, those differences and value those differences. And through communication, through listening, through, through community building, through, through, through opening ourselves up to allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Uh, there's a social worker that I follow all the time, Brene Brown, who talks about the power of vulnerability and allowing one to be vulnerable so that we can open ourselves up to learning, to listening, to, to engaging in very um, difficult conversations. And I think what's both exciting and in some parts of me still angers me is the unfortunate reality that for this country uh, in 2020 to still be having to address and break down the this, this systems that support racism, the systems that support these types of injustices. And so how we come together as a community is critical and what's been empowering you know when you're watching the marches and you're watching everything that's going on the diversity of all the people who are marching white black latino asian uh all the different people lgbtq everybody who's marching um because of racism in any color in any way is wrong and we need to break that down as a society um, but you know there's there's ways that we do that without the violence without the without the hatred and and, and finding ways to communicate and to have these difficult conversations in a way that empowers and allows for everyone to be heard. And I think that's the challenge. And I, and I know through my work with the UNLV and the School of Public Health and the coalition, that those are, the, those are some of the things that we constantly have to remind ourselves 
and I'm not perfect and I don't always get it done, but reminding myself to make sure that we're creating space for everybody, no matter from what they're, from where they're coming from, what their lived experiences are, that they all have a voice at the table. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not triumphant every day, but being mindful of it and reminding myself every day that this is something we have to work at and work at very hard every day of our lives and every minute um, so that we can build the kind of community that we want. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. And you brought up another theme that is, is just flowing throughout the conversation tonight of listening. And that is what we're really here to do. We're here to listen to each other. So those of you that are in the listening audience, I want you to participate in the conversation. It's some great conversation already happening in the chat, but continue that. Continue to speak with each other and all of the panelists here today. The Q&A box is open as well. I'd like to launch a quick poll, just a few questions to to gauge our temperature tonight. So, Holly, would you launch that for us? The first question is simply, is Las Vegas a compassionate place to live? Yes, no, work in progress. The second question is, do you think the definition of racism is clear? Simply yes or no. The last question is, have we militarized our notion of public safety too much? Yes, no, or other. And if you choose other, we would love to have what that means to you in the chat box. So we'll take just a moment to allow everyone to take the poll. While we're doing that, before our next panelist comes on, I just want to encourage you to keep the conversation very civil. We want it to be honest, but of course, we want to frame this with compassion, with integrity, and with care. So understand we are all people. We may not say everything in the exact way we intend, but here, listen to our hearts, listen to what it is in the spirit of what we're sharing, um, and then also understand you're hearing through your lens. So we may be saying something and just not understanding, not meeting quite in the middle. So give us that grace. All right, let's see where we are on the poll, see what our results are. Work in progress, not quite clear on racism, and yeah, strong yes for having militarized our notion of public safety. So we'll definitely dive into that. Thank you everyone for participating. Our next panelist is someone who is truly extraordinary. You are going to be so blessed by her tonight. Her name is Alexandria Evans. She is a highly motivated and ambitious leader with a passion for improving the lives of others. She has been a resident of the Las Vegas community since 2007, where she has dedicated much of her time to volunteerism, community outreach and development. She graduated from UNLV right here in Las Vegas with a bachelor's degree in public health and a master's degree in public administration. Currently, she is a doctoral student working to obtain her PhD in public health with a focus on social and behavioral health. I would like you all to welcome Alex Evans. Hi, everyone, and well, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, to be quite honest, um, I'm a very authentic and genuine person, and it's got me this far, so why not stop now? Um, I was unsure of how to navigate this space, um, but as of 30 seconds ago, it all became super clear to me. Um, I intended to approach this conversation um, from a very professional public health perspective. Um, as well mentioned, I'm getting my doctorate in public health. Um, but then I realized, in addition to that, I have 
experienced my whole life as a black woman um, and there are a certain set of challenges that go along with that having to code switch or um, oftentimes we make ourselves feel smaller to make other individuals feel comfortable um, and I think that the death and the, the killing of George Floyd really struck a chord with me um, because that's not necessary. Um, I'm doing myself and communities of color and injustice by holding back. And so I am truly here as a vessel of change and to really um, share my voice uh, to work against systemic racism and to ensure that we all have an even playing field. Um, that was my personal view from a public health perspective. Um, this country was built on racism um, and it has affected us throughout time. We see it today, um, whether it's education, access to health care, uh, just in general. And so I think these conversations are extremely necessary. It's important to be extremely vulnerable. Um, and so that's what I'm here to do today is to really share my voice, to be authentic in who I am, to be genuine, but to also listen to other individuals so we can work towards a common goal and um, arrive at a solution to addressing the issues that we face within um, the Las Vegas community. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that's exactly what we want, is that, that lived experience. Each of us brings a unique perspective to the world. This is a planet of nearly 8 billion people. And I always say each person has their own universe in their mind. And so um, I appreciate your transparency and for, for your bravery and courage to put yourself out and, and be a voice in this conversation. Talking about racism in and of itself can be a very difficult subject just because of how polarizing the very idea that racism continues to exist is. The idea that there is systemic racism is still polarizing. And tonight we are going to investigate this. We're going to discuss it. We're going to discover our pathways to systemic change so that we can make a lasting change for our community and ultimately for the world. Again, I invite the questions to come in. We have reached our Q&A portion of the conversation tonight. So with that, uh, this is going to be open. I will chime in from time to time, but I really am just here to, to ask the tough questions. So um, all of the panelists are welcome to, to chime in on this. But my very first question, um, it's right there in the chat box for those that are looking. And it's from Peter, all the way from Australia. And he's inspired to hear how diversity is embraced in Las Vegas, which makes it one of the most vibrant cities in the world. So the question portion of this is, have there been any studies done around what extent uh, police services representation of the communities and, in, and the individuals within that community? Are there any studies regarding how that affects the outcomes? And Jose, I'll toss that one to you first. Can you hear me? There you go. All right, sorry about that. Um, you know, I've, I've not directly been involved with those, but yes, I know there have been studies. There's, there's been multiple uh, in the, uh, from the schools of sociology, uh, urban affairs, those departments. Um, they, they've looked at those things. They continue to look at those things. I know here in the School of Public Health, uh, one of our uh, incredible faculty members, uh, Dr. Melva Thompson Robinson, runs the Center for Health Disparities Research. 
and she's done multiple projects looking at the disparities that exist from a public health perspective, the impact on African-Americans, other diverse populations. Um, the, obviously right now, uh, a lot of the work from the School of Public Health uh, in regards to what's happening with the COVID-19, what the COVID-19 has done is really brought forward the inequities that exist from a racial perspective, the have and the have nots. And I know that right now she is leading, um, has a research proposal going forward that looks at that from an African-American experience, Latino experience, American Indian uh, experience, and, and other cultures that are being impacted. Uh, and so, um, you know, when you look at the makeup of Nevada, and I'll just, you know, for selfish reality, because I live in Southern Nevada, when you look at the richness of the diversity that makes Southern Nevada, um, you know, it's such an opportunity for us to build upon and look at that. And so when, when you do look at, from a research perspective, what have we learned? How do we take what we learned and, and, and create programs and create initiatives and, and do work in the community that's going to empower uh, and build bridges across all of our different communities? Uh, because, you know, from my perspective, at the end of the day, we're all trying to get to that good place. We're all trying to get to that place where we can be safe, where my, where my daughter, who's 15, a Latina, can grow up and is going to be treated equally, whether man or woman or, or, or that she's Latina, that she'll have equal opportunities, like, just like anybody uh, around her. And, and, you know, and I know we still, I'm not naive, I know we still have a lot of work to do in those areas. And, you know, my, my training, my work as a social worker, um, especially in the world of diversity and equity and, and dealing with these things that we're talking about tonight. Um, you know, one thing that I pray for, literally pray for every day, is the day that I'm out of a job. Uh, I, I would welcome the day that I'm out of a job because we've figured out how to work together, how to live together, how to be one community and respect all and, and have a place for everyone to have a voice. Um, you know, I think we're making a lot of, there's a lot of good stride, a lot of good stride in that direction. But again, I you know, we know we have a lot of work to do there um, to build the kind of communities that we want and that we inspire to be. Yeah, that's, that's such a great insight. One other thing I'd like to dive a little more deeply into is really how does this intersect with policing? How does the public health piece of this, the community, represent, uh, excuse me, community representation piece, and then the policing piece, how does all of that work together? Uh, well, from my, from, from my perspective, you know, in, in the, the world that I live in, um, everything has a connection to public health, right? Quality of life, access to, access to, to medical services, uh, health insurance, um, communication and interaction with our police department. You know, um, I know there's a lot of challenges to policing right now. I know we have a strong effort here with community policing and engaging our community with, with Metro and the other, the other police uh, departments that are around in Southern Nevada. Uh, and I know there's a lot of efforts there. Um, and, you know, I honestly, if I'm being perfectly honest with everybody tonight, um, all these calls for defunding the police and this and that, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right path or not. I, I, what I, from my perspective, um, you know, I, I think it's not an issue of cutting funding, but maybe of how you redirect funding for for specific types of training, for specific, specific types of community building that really engages our police departments uh, and our police officers with, with the community that they are, represent, be a part of, and that, you know, that I know they go out every day and protect. Um, and a, a lot of times putting their lives on the line uh, for, the, for the good of this community. So, um, 
you know, I'm still trying to figure that part out, but I know Nevada and Southern Nevada, there is a strong community policing. Uh, and then obviously there's always room for more growth and more opportunity for all of us to work together. Um, but I know it exists and I know that door is open. It's a matter of how we find those things that connect us and when do we choose or when do we find that right time to walk through that door? Captain Larkin, can you share your insights? What, what do you have? This is a, a big one here. So it's interesting and it's actually what, what I'd call one of those softball questions. You asked me probably my favorite thing to talk about, so thank you. Listen, um, Jose's right. You know, there's always room for training. There's always opportunities for us to learn that which we don't know about. And I'll give you a good example. You know, we know what we grow up in, right? And like Alexandria mentioned, she grew up an African-American woman. She had all of the things that came along with that, had those experiences, had that lens, had that family, and it's a very unique experience that nobody else, if they don't grow up that way, can have the same understanding. And the same is true in religion, in sexual orientation, in, in all of those categories, right, that make us, quote, different, that make us separate from one another. And the same is true in policing, right? I, I am a second-generation Mexican, Hispanic, Latina as well. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where the majority of us were Hispanic in my neighborhood. We, we spoke Spanish. We, we lived in a very non-diverse neighborhood for the most part until I went into high school. And what I'll tell you is that it's a unique experience once you get thrown into um, a space where you're different, where you stand out, where you're not the same as other people. And when I came up in the police department, I had never been told that I couldn't, right? My mom said, you can do anything you want. Uh, I grew up believing I was going to be exactly like, and I don't mean to date myself, so for the listeners that didn't have the experience of growing up in the 80s, we had this phenomenal TV show called Chips. And I think it started in the late 70s, but it was a very unique show with a really unique theme song that you're all singing in your head right now. But this, this TV show was my first introduction to policing. And there was a really cool blonde-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful female on this show and she did everything the guys did. She rode a motorcycle, she caught bad guys, she, she drove fast. And I thought, oh, that's just what I wanna do here outside every day. And she saved people. And so I told my mom at a young age, I'm gonna be a police officer, that's what I'm gonna do. And she said, you can do anything you put your mind to. And that was it, that was, that was my mentality. But when I joined the police department, what I didn't understand probably my first six months was that I was different than the guys. Not that I was better, not that I was worse. I was different. I was a female. And I had a female training officer one day, and she saw that I was really trying hard to be one of the guys. And she stopped the car one day, and she said, you do understand that no matter how hard you try, you will never be a man. And it was a harsh awakening for me, and I didn't understand completely what that meant. But what she meant was that I had different strengths that I was bringing to the table and that if I would learn to embrace them and if I would learn that compassion was an okay thing, that I was going to be able to offer something that didn't get brought to the table as much as it could. And what I mean by that is back then in policing, we believed that if we showed up on a call, we found the person responsible for committing the crime, put handcuffs on them and took them to jail, that was it. We were done. We throw the key, lock it up, lock them away, and forget about it. But the truth is, that's not what the community wanted nor needed, and nor does it create long-lasting impact on crime. 
So the second that we started to ask people, how did you get in this situation? How did you get to be homeless? How did you get to be a drug uh, addicted individual? How did all of these things actually happen? And when we started to find out that the humanistic component of these crimes really mattered, policing started to change. And the second thing that happened is, and, and I'll be totally honest that I didn't, you, most people don't know much outside their microcosm. Um, we had a, I was policing a neighborhood in Las Vegas, which is the old West side, right? West Las Vegas. And we used to do foot patrol back there. And we had uh, two mosques in our neighborhood, uh, Majid al-Sabur and the Nation of Islam mosque, which were within a mile of each other. And we would walk around the mosque and we would look and, and wonder what went on inside those buildings. We were very curious, but we didn't know anything about it. And the truth is, I didn't know anything about Islam because I grew up Catholic and Baptist. And we wanted to know, but we were afraid to ask because we were afraid of looking ignorant. But the truth is, we were. We were naive. And one day, uh, we got the courage up to walk by and say hello. And shockingly, they said hello back. And there began a relationship of love and acceptance and where we started to learn about one another. But what we learned was they knew as little about us as we knew about them. And that's how community policing began for me. Uh, I always say it was completely on accident, but God had it totally on purpose because we needed to know about them. We needed to understand. And here's the commonality we found over the next couple of years. We found out that so many communities didn't understand how similar they were to the police department and vice versa. And I'll give you an example. You know, after 9-11, what did the media do to the Islamic community? They painted them with a big, broad brushstroke and they said, you know, Muslims, terrorists, look what happened at 9-11. And most people don't understand how painful that is, how painful that broad brushstroke is until you've been painted with it. And we went to them and said, you know what, we feel you. And here's a couple examples of when police officers around the country have done despicable things. And this is long before George Floyd, when police officers shot, shot unarmed black individuals or taken a life or done something that people cringe at. They get the broad brushstroke all around the country, all around the world for that matter. So that was one of the first times that we understand, that we understood the equalizing power of being painted with a broad brush. And that's how we started to understand one another on so many different levels. And Pastor Troy said it earlier that we are very inclusive, but that's how it started. And then we realized, hey, we don't understand really anything about the Jewish community or all the intricacies of the LGBT community or all of the, and I could go on and on and on about all the different communities. But we did over the last 10 years, one at a time, go in and say, teach us. We want to know because the truth is we don't. We don't really understand who you are, your soul, at your core. And the truth is, we don't understand how to police you in a way that is helpful for you and your community and your family, so teach us. And the other thing is, we wanna be able to give you what you need on a community-based level, but understand why we do the things that we do when we show up on calls for service. So I know I went a little bit in a broad circle, Will, and I hope that helps, but I think that part of policing is that we do represent the community we serve, but it takes time to get there. And I think we have to understand one another before we can represent. You shared so many vital points, particularly the fact that it's gonna take time to get there. I know that there are a lot of changes happening within the department, even as we speak, and I hope to get to 
talk about a few of them tonight. But I want to bring Alex into the conversation because you said something that really sparked something I think she could speak to. And that said being painted with a broad brush. How do we engage people who don't fit into any particular category. So Alex, as a black female PhD student, you are in a very unique position. How do we get, get folks to engage you and to recognize that you have something to offer without perhaps a stereotype or um, prejudice or, or prejudgment uh, of your character or what your ambitions are? Yeah, thank you, Will. Um, and so I think um, one of the things that um captain larkin said it was the police department is looking to give us what we need but if we look at the city or the state as a whole we're lacking in so many areas we don't have education we don't have access to health care we don't have access to quality jobs and so um right wrong or indifferent i think communities of color turn to other um, methods of supporting themselves, which in turn results into extra policing. And so I think until we address the root issue of the problem, which is um, just the disparities in the access of goods and services that overall um, provide improvements to our lives, we're not able to really address the root issue, a root the address issue of police um, brutality and the extra policing in these communities of color. Um, I think another um, topic mentioned um, was that um, compassion within the police department. And I think that um, not all police are bad. As a personal example, I have, my father was a cop. I have family members that are in police departments, not in Nevada, but in other states. Um, but here, in the, so I don't, I in no way, shape or form think police are bad. Um, but I do believe that there are, um, accountability issues within Metro. There have been, you know, individuals that have been killed by the Metro Police Department um, and they have not been tried. They have not had to have to suffer any consequences. Um, and so I think that there's still a larger issue that hasn't been addressed and that needs to be discussed before we're really able to address um, healthy policing um, and resources to communities of color and equal access to goods and services, education, health um, as a whole. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And you sparked for me something in that that I'd like to throw to Jose. You are the master coalition builder, and you've been doing this for a long time. So earlier in your comments, you had mentioned defunding the police, which, of course, is, is a very hot topic right now. Can you speak to how community coalitions can be built? And Captain Larkin, of course, I'd love for your input on this as well. But how can we perhaps refund or reallocate some of these resources to deal with mental health issues, substance abuse and, and, and uh, misuse? How do, we, how do we reallocate these funds to support in a way that allows our community to be edified versus incarcerated? Right. Uh, and thank you for that question. You, you know, um, what I've learned about coalition building, and again, you know, my uh, where I learned and, and got some on the ground experience again was with my graduate work and then professional work in Detroit, where you were bringing uh, African-American, Latinos, uh, Muslim community, all these different folks who were coming together. And it was a coalition that was of almost 60 different organizations, agencies, community-based groups, individual members of the community that were all coming together, you know, and what people, I think what people need to understand is that, you know, you don't build a coalition that here's a problem, we're going to bring these 25 people together and good, now we're done, let's build a coalition, let's have a program and boom, we're done. You know, 
when you make a commitment to coalition work, um, it's a never ending process. It's, it's a process that is ongoing. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for growth. There's always room for more voices at the table um, to create the kind of space that we need to create and not if we want to, we need to create this space where everybody can come together and find that common ground. You know, there was a, I saw a question there about Black Lives Matter. And it's been interesting to me because the last couple of days, the last two weeks, um, a lot of people know not to be political, but a lot of people know that I tend to be a progressive leaning Democrat and other things that I am and the many titles that I embrace or wear, depending on how I'm feeling that day. But um, but I've been I've had I've had some very interesting conversations uh, with folks uh, who lean a certain way. And, you know, that why should just Black Lives Matter? Shouldn't every life matter? And yes, every life should matter. But but when you look when we, we have to know our history. We have to understand what's happened from a historical perspective to understand where we need to go, the direction that we need to go in, and, and not to repeat those mistakes. And when, 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 that, when the bad part of our history continues to happen over and over and over again, and, you know, for the time, I, I watched that video with George Floyd, and, and I just couldn't believe the whole eight minutes, nine minutes, ten minutes, because there's more videos come out. The whole time that I watched this, and I just couldn't believe that I was sitting there and, and viewing what was happening, um, you know, in 2020. And, and, and not just, you know, to African American, I mean, Latinos, Asian Americans, look at the history of our country and what's happened from the racial injustice perspective. And so we have to be, we can't deny that history. We have to, we have to make, we have to be able to talk about it, um, but we have to find ways of commonality, ways of, of peace, uh, ways of human kindness that we can find those ways to work together, you know, and, and, and I appreciate what Captain Larkin's been saying, um, because, you know, the police and what the role that they play in our society is such a critical component, because honestly, from my perspective, um, I don't know what that would look, I don't, I don't know what a kind of world would be like if you didn't have those people that enforce, and I, I know that's a strong word, but that enforce the public good, that enforce the peace. And yes, not every not every cop is. I saw some comments in there about, you know, training for police officers. Again, I don't think that defunding is the answer. I think putting resources into other training, to mental health services, to providing more resources. Because when somebody commits to being a police officer, and I've never been a police officer, but I have friends and 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 colleagues who have gone into that world. Um, but when you put those resources into training, because at the end of the day, we all need to acknowledge our our, our human kindness, our human ability, our human weaknesses. Uh, and when you're when you're able to talk about those things, um, it's when you start to build coalitions that can bring different folks together to address whatever the problem might be in that moment. And that's why I say coalition building, um, it takes a genuine effort, it takes genuine commitment, and that everybody needs to be willing to work and, and understand that when you decide to be a part of a coalition, you're hopefully getting in for the long term to try and address the issues that are coming up, that are gonna come up, that are gonna happen again. Um, you know, we need to be prepared as a community to deal with that and, and work for the good of our community. Again, and like I said earlier, um, I, I, I look forward to the day that I'm out of a job uh, because I'm not having to deal with diversity and equity and all these other issues that continually happen. Um, so please, put, somebody put me out of a job and uh, let's, get this, let's get this figured out. Well, Jose, don't say that too loudly right now. We are in the middle of budget cuts. So want to be careful with that one. Well, you know what? They can, they can do all the budget cuts they want, but it's not going to change that we still have to address these issues. 
Absolutely. So this is to the, the panel as a whole. And this is a question from the Q&A. Every institutional pillar in our society reveals dramatic and deeply ingrained disparities, education, employment, economic participation, and the like. If you could take one action tomorrow that would make our community and world a more just place, what would you do? I, for example, I would um, place more diverse leadership. Um, I think having diversity in leadership and representation would definitely um, be a start to creating some change and alleviating some of the racism that we experience on a regular basis. Um, when you have leadership that is predominantly um, conservative, white and male, that's not an accurate representation of the country, let alone a city or a state. Um, and so once we get that representation, we'll be able to make the change that's necessary and that's needed. So I, I would agree with Alexandria that there is so many benefits of having diverse leadership. I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, we get to all show up with our different lens of experience and we get to contribute to the process in a whole based on our previous experience. But here's the other thing I'll offer you. I think that most people don't know what they don't know. And I, we realized that early on in policing. And I'll tell you, uh, I, I think that for the last 10 years, you know, I, I hear you, uh, Alexandria, and all of you guys that are talking about the fact that there's always room for change and that, you know, we, are, we don't have it all figured out. That's the truth. Uh, but we are open to change. We are open to growing. We are open to feedback. And I'll tell you that Sheriff Joe Lombardo is one of the most progressive sheriffs that the LBMPD has ever had. And one thing that he constantly preaches to us is accountability. So I'm not sure what specific incidents you're talking about, but I will tell you that our department leads the country in the accountability measures for use of force, officer-involved shootings, and not just that. It's not like we do an internal investigation, we exclude the community, and we go, surprise, here's the answers. We give a 72-hour brief after use of force incident happens to the media. We release all body-worn camera footage. As a matter of fact, we stood up a unit that does nothing but release body-worn camera footage to the media. Uh, we release all of the information after 1 October. We release it every single time we have an incident. And here's the truth. We're not perfect. We haven't always done it perfectly. But we are willing to learn from our mistakes. More importantly, our policy is a living, breathing document that's constantly getting updated, refined. And more importantly, just so you guys know, the board that Pastor Troy sits on and so many others, the Sheriff Multicultural Advisory Council, they contribute to that policy. They review our policy and they go, hey, did you look at it from this point of view? In a Latino world, we think, you know, you should look at it like this. From the LGBT point, look at it like this. And they're right. And we take those suggestions and we input them and we adjust our policy accordingly. So it's not something that happens in a vacuum anymore. And that's so important for the community to understand. The policy that your police department uses is inputted and changed by the community that represents all of you, Hispanic, uh, African-American, all of the different religions. They all come forward and they have input in this. And a couple of years ago, in 2012, and listen, we've been at this for a while because we've known that we've, there was room for improvement. In 2012, we proactively brought in the Department of Justice to look at our police department, to look at our policy, to look at our leadership, because you're right. White male does have a lot of leadership uh, seats at the table. And we said, hey, Department of Justice, how can we improve? How can we get better? And they put us through a full reform process. 
And the other side of a reform process, if a police department doesn't do it, is a consent decree. And you'll see police departments all around the country that have been put under consent decree because of the actions they've taken with use of force. So after that whole procedure went, uh, they said to us, hey, Metro, you guys need to look at Im implicit bias. Every person, which includes every police officer, has implicit bias. Do you guys have a training course on it? And to Jose's point, no, we didn't. So we took, uh, it took us about 12 months to train every single employee, not just the police officers, but every employee, civilian and commission, on what implies implicit bias is and the discussions for respect of individual rights of a person. Uh, the course talks about prejudices, biases, how they can be outwardly involving our subconscious or inward involving our unconscious. It's a course that we go through and it goes through updates every couple of years that an outside agency came out, outside corp, uh, person came in and taught for us. Um, listen, there's 10 courses that we now have that cops go through. Fair and impartial policing. Um, it identifies overriding biases and techniques that are defined in procedural justice and so that we understand the benefits of procedural justice. We, use, uh, we have a communication course that we're required to take so we can understand how to really listen, like somebody said early on. Uh, values, ethics, and professionalism. Constitutional policing. And then as you start to promote into supervisor rank, how do you have equality in supervision and making sure that your cops are policing with equality? Uh, cultural awareness, something that we do starting in the academy all the way through. And I want to offer you this because I'm really proud of some of the steps our department has taken. You know, about, uh, about 10 years ago, we recognized that we didn't understand who made up our community. So we, went, we started with religion uh, because at the time we were living in a post 9-11 world and we realized that we needed to understand who made up our community so we could better help them. So we asked the top eight religions, obviously not including Catholicism because the majority of people have a decent understanding of what Catholic or uh, Christian-based um, religion is. So we went to the um, Shia Muslims, the Sunni Muslims, the Baha'i, the, the Jewish community, uh, the Hindu community, all of the different communities. And we said, hey, will you come in and teach a course two-hour course on what your religion is and how you look at the police from where you're from, what are your fears about the police, so on and so forth. And then we had the police do an interactive dialogue with them so they could understand, again, how uh, our policy is outlined. And then we had them take part in training and we took part in their training. And to make a long story short, we gave the police a inside look into all of these different religions so that they would understand why would you want me to take off my shoes? If I stop a woman wearing a hijab, what does that mean? Whose hand do I shake? What, how does the men and women interact in different cultures? And that was a huge eye-opener for so many uh, employees on our agency. And we continue to update that every few years so that new officers coming in have the same understanding. Uh, we do procedural justice through non-biased policing and conflict resolution. These are courses that are constantly, constantly taught, offered, refreshed, updated, and we do bring in outside community members to help teach them. Uh, Mujahid Ramadan leads our MMAC board. They come in and they're, he's constantly bringing in new ways for us to look at things from a community point of view because we need to grow. We need to understand better who we're serving. And I'm happy to tell you that we've come a long way, but I'm also humble enough to tell you we have a long way to go. And we look forward to making those changes in partnership with our community. So just to kind of follow up to that piece, um, 
like to share that. Thank you, Coco Dinkins, for dropping into the chat. Um, there was Jorge Gomez, there was Keith Childress, Rafael Olivas, and Tashi Brown that were all um, killed by the police. But in a personal experience, my brother's um, my brother's friend, he was at a peaceful protest, peacefully protesting in light of the George Floyd um, murder. And he had guns drawn on him. And all he was trying to do was drop his friend off from his car. Like they, they walked to his car, they dropped him off. They were going to drive him to his car. And police pulled up, guns drawn, and approached their vehicle. And so I think no matter the amount of courses that you teach um, and whatever education that you share with the police force, at the end of the day, an individual has the choice to act on what they think is best. If, if an individual is racist, no, no amount of training can deter them from that. If they choose to act out in that, choose to do. And so it's amazing and it's a positive step in the right direction for Metro to have all of these inclusive trainings and the diversity trainings to kind of combat this type of issue from happening. But until there's true accountability, um, there's no way to stop these killings. Um, as a follow-up, my brother's friend, that wasn't reported. So what happens to all these crimes against people of color that are not reported? And how um, is Metro addressing that? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so here's one of the things that I love now that we get to uh, have on our side, and I believe wholeheartedly in them. Uh, the LVMPD instituted a few years ago uh, body-worn cameras because we had a lot of people coming forward saying I had this experience, I had that experience. And it's true, there's all kinds of things that happen out there every single day. And as a supervisor, the only way that I can hold someone accountable is to, is to number one, to know about it. Uh, so thank you for bringing it to my attention. Uh, and number two, that I can have all the facts surrounding the case from both sides so I can hold uh, the officer accountable. Now, is the accountability a training issue or is it just pure, you know, uh, disobedience, violation of policy, or even worse, is it unethical and racist, like you said? So having the body-worn cameras now implemented, we're able to pull up the video, and usually there's more than one officer on scene, so we can see it from a few different vantage points. We have all of those that we hold uh, in a cloud that we do, we have the ability to review. So whenever a complaint comes through, uh, we do pull those cameras and we, we watch them. If it's something that rises to the level of uh, needing to open a statement of complaint, we will open that statement of complaint, send it through internal affairs, and it's handled on a very official basis. We do have 100% of our officers, and I just saw someone say, what if they turn them off? We hold them accountable for turning them off. It is against the policy for them to turn their camera off in the middle of a call. So if we find out if someone brings a uh, complaint to us and we're watching the video and all of a sudden it clicks off, that's an issue. Uh, we recognize that and we hold the officers accountable for that. And if on the video it's seen that they do something that's in violation of policy, we hold them accountable. Listen, that's the great thing about these cameras. Let, let me be honest, we don't want cops on our police department that are gonna do something wrong, maybe physical, mental, or emotional. Uh, we don't wanna see that. And so we do want to hold them accountable and make sure that we either A, change behavior, or B, uh, take them off of our department. Never forget, we hire from the human race, uh, just as every other profession does. And we do the best we can on the very front to screen them out and make sure that we don't get any bad apples. But in the instances that it happens, we do hold them accountable. And it's something that Sheriff Lombardo and his executive staff take very seriously. I will tell you that there is no room in this culture we have on this police department for actions like that. When they're brought to our attention, I can guarantee you that they're handled through the internal affairs process and uh, using any evidence that we are able to use in that uh, investigation. 
So thank you for asking that question. Yeah, wow. I mean, great conversation here. And it's, it's so encouraging to hear the progress that's being made and the things that we are, are, are moving towards. And I appreciate your honesty in acknowledging that there's still room to improve and we have to do better in certain areas. In the chat, uh, several times, eight can't wait has come up. How close are we to, to acknowledging that and to implementing that? I love it. You guys are asking all my favorite questions tonight. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Eight Can't Wait is something that um, has come up around the country that we have implemented. Um, have, has the LVMPD banned chokeholds and strangleholds? That's the first one. Uh, the LVMPD does not permit chokeholds or strangleholds that restrict breathing. Absolutely not. Uh, we have the lateral vascular neck restraint, which is otherwise known as the LVNR. And it has been moved to deadly force, meaning if we are in a fight for our life and they have... Uh, we've exhausted all of the resources and we feel like our life could be taken in that moment. The lateral vascular, vascular neck restraint is um, allowed, but only in a deadly force situation. And I will tell you that that's very, very important because it's only used under the most extreme circumstances. And the use of LVNR uh, goes to, and look, and the use of deadly force or, or the LVNR will have to go through a review, uh, much like we do in an officer involved shooting. Um, that will have a very low number of applications. I mean, we already have a very low number of applications, but I guarantee you it'll be even lower now that it's gonna be in deadly force. And it's really only for those circumstances, like I said, uh, where there's no other alternatives. Uh, and it's used, just to give you a uh, relationship, it's used at a, in the same situation where an officer would use their firearm, right? Deadly force, firearm, LVNR. So that's how serious we take it. Uh, the second thing at 8 Can't Wait is what are the procedures for requiring de-escalation? That is a term that there's not an officer in our department you won't find that doesn't understand that term. We talk about it every day in briefing. We talk about it every day when we're debriefing an event, uh, debriefing a call. The LVMPD has extensive training on de-escalation. And as a matter of fact, I'm proud to say we were the very first agency to write a de-escalation section into our policy. It is one of the most extensive policies written on de-escalation that provides explicit direction on how to perform it. And if anybody's interested, they're able to get uh, the de-escalation policy online. Number three, does LVMPD require a warning before shooting? Yes. It's mentioned several times in policy, and we have three different quoted areas that will give a warning if feasible before using deadly force. Whenever feasible, officers will identify themselves and state their intention to shoot. Uh, for example, say, police, I'll shoot, et cetera. And again, if you're interested in reading that full policy, it's online. Number four, does the LVMPD exhaust all their means before shooting? There are a couple areas in our policy that address this, and here's our opening statement. It is the policy of this department that officers hold the highest regard and dignity and liberty of all persons and place minimal reliance upon the use of force. And I think that's important because everybody has to know that the sanctity of life is what we value above all other. The department respects the sanctity of every human life and the application of deadly force is a measure to be employed in the most extreme circumstances where lesser means of force have failed and couldn't reasonably be considered. Number five, does the LVMPD have the duty to intervene, which directly relates to George Floyd? Uh, and the answer is absolutely. LVMPD was the first major police agency that had a duty to intervene in our policy. Our language has been copied across the country, and we've added a component that requires a supervisor to order the officer to stop. Many police departments do not have that added in. Has the LVMPD banned shooting at moving vehicles? Yes, we did this many years ago. 
LVMPD strongly restricts your shooting at moving vehicles, and we have one of the most comprehensive policies on this issue. If you would like me to go into further detail later on it, I'm happy to do so. Uh, and does the LVMPD require a use of force continuum, meaning do we go from lowest level of force to highest level of force? Yes, we have a continuum. And also utilize a clear linear model and training that is in our policy. It has depicted in our policy an illustrated model, and it is fully uh, available online if you'd like to see it. Uh, but listen, uh, at the end of the day, we have require comprehensive reporting each time an officer uses force or threatens to do so. Yes, uh, our reporting when an officer uses force that it goes all the way up to my level. So as a captain, uh, there's two layers beneath me. I have a lieutenant and beneath that is a sergeant. And so every use of force starts at the police officer. They fill it out. It goes to the sergeant. They review it. They review all board or camera, all reports. They interview witnesses. A full investigation is done. Anytime force is used or complaint of injury on any kind of contact. And then it goes to the lieutenant who also reviews all body-worn camera and all reports. And then it comes to me. I review all body-worn camera and all reports. So yes, uh, every time that force is used, we review it. So that's the eight can't wait. Uh, and I hope that that gives you some clarity and some understanding. If you want to read it in its entirety, um, I know that we can share it. It's online. It's available. Our policy is uh, available for anyone who wants to read it and i'm happy to uh, answer any questions about it but it's it's we're we're trying to refine our policy and i guess that's what i'll leave you with we know it's not perfect but we're, we're trying to refine it so people understand and more importantly so our police officers understand there's nothing more important than the sanctity of life and what we saw in george floyd was that that was not taken seriously uh i've seen that video just like most of you have seen it a hundred times on my stomach turns. It is not acceptable. And we would never, ever allow, condone, or support the use of violence like that by any of our police officers. And that's a really important distinction I hope that our community understands. Yeah, we absolutely hear you and appreciate all of that. One thing that I'm seeing in the chat that keeps coming up is there's a difference between policy and practice. And so we actually have a question from one of the participants in the chat here who's going to come on live. And I think it's in, involving a few things, but I will mention we, we've seen a couple times come up with the peaceful protesters and how uh, they were, I don't know the full details, but they, they appear to have been uh, basically uh, tear gassed and, and moved out, even though they hadn't been in any violation. So I think this is really a matter of how we, we talked earlier about representation and diversity. So I'd like to ask Elisa Howard to turn on her camera and ask her question, please. And be sure to unmute as well. Hey, am I am I on? You're on. <laughs> Thank you. Technology, gotta love it. Uh, so my question um, is pretty much to Jose or to anyone that would like to um, answer. What does equal representation um, mean? One part, and then. As a CHW and a professional public health um, person, I understand the importance of representation, but how do we get better balance and equality? For me. Uh, is it okay? Should I? I'll, I'll be glad to take the first part of it. When we talk about equal representation and equality and all those things, um, from my experience and from what I've learned, um, 
whatever the power structure is, whatever the powers that be are, um, it has to be very intentional. You know, we can't, we can talk about it all we want, but, but if we're not intentional about diversifying our boards, about creating systems that allow everyone to have the same opportunity, no matter gender, colors, whatever, to, to really have the opportunity to move up, to move forward, to, to, to have successful businesses, to, to get a quality education. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be looked at. Uh, and for me, from what I've learned, uh, the intentionality uh, from the from the top down is critical, um, you know, and it's not enough to talk about. It's not enough to say, well, look at our policies and look at the things that we have in place. Actions are always going to be louder than words. And when we hold, I've heard it a couple of times tonight, when you hold people accountable for their actions, it's when I think you start to move towards really putting real change in place. Um, and, and so, you know, you can have all the policies to talk about, oh, we are diverse and we are equitable and we are all of this. But until you address the actions of individuals and hold people accountable for those actions, uh, it's only when we start to see real change. And, and, you know, and unfortunately, in the recent situation with George Floyd and all that, it, you know, it's unfortunate that it, it took that kind of action. And then along with all the other names of, of all the other individuals that have died since then and during that time. Um, you know, and, and again, not just black, Latino and black and, and Asian and Pacific and all the other groups that are impacted um, by this, um, that, um, that we need to hold, we, we need to look at the actions of individuals and then see if that, those actions speak to the words that they constantly put forward. Um, just as a follow-up, I love everything that Jose said. Um, diversity to mean doesn't just mean your race or your skin color, but it also means your thought process. Um, just because you're Black or just because you're Hispanic or whatever, if your thought process isn't diverse from the others around you, it makes no difference. We're still stuck in the same boat. Um, I saw someone in the comment mention, mention equity versus equality. Um, and for me, equality means everyone just has the equal opportunity, but equity means, um, I learned this through school, um, giving someone an extra boost because they really don't have that same opportunity. And I think that's the, that's the issue that most people have. You're giving extra resources to some so that they can meet you at an even playing field. Um, and so when we're really looking at resolving systemic racism and really creating equal opportunities for all individuals. Um, it may not look fair surface point for all individuals, um, but we have to look at where we all came from and where we all started from. Um, and that's really how we're going to get to where we need to be. Thank you, Alex. So we are winding down. We've only got a few minutes late, so I'm going to, uh, or left. So I'm going to ask that the questions uh, or the answers be as succinct as possible. And I know this is such a broad topic, but uh, Captain, the, the subject of accountability just keeps coming up and coming up. The instance with Byron Williams, the body cam was turned off for several minutes. Wondering what specific discipline did they receive? And I'll add on to that with a question of, do you think that having a more diverse leadership would allow accountability to take place in a more effective way? I think that diverse leadership would allow accountability to come in a more effective way. Um, listen, I think there's benefit to diverse leadership. I think it's important, you know, because we come, we bring different qualities to the table and we have different spheres of influence. I think that diversity of influence is a very positive, good thing. And uh, I don't know that, it, I guess I'm confused on your part of the question, does it affect accountability? Um, 
I'm confident that our police department believes in accountability and puts it forward. I have been a part of countless discipline processes of holding officers accountable for when they made poor choices. Um, and I, and I speak specifically to like the body cam issue here. So I just did an investigation today where somebody turned off their camera and we hold them accountable. We give them discipline. I just signed the discipline today. I mean, to me, those things are black and white. Either you turn it on or you turn it off. If you turn it off, you're in violation of policy. You receive discipline. So to me, it's, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. And, and I think that that has nothing to do with me being Hispanic or female or anything else. Uh, policy is set in place and we do hold people accountable. Uh, I will tell you that it's something that it starts at the sheriff all the way on down. I've seen uh, people of every rank go through the disciplinary process uh, for making poor choices. And so I, I, don't, I don't know that the color of a skin or, but I do agree with what Alexandria says as far as bringing diversity as far as thought process, which I think that we do well. I think our sheriff does not surround himself by yes men. I think that he does surround himself with people that think differently than him, uh, which is how we were able to build a lot of these community programs. You know, our undersheriff, Kevin McMahill is from a background of terrorism and community-based programming, and he's the one that really has put forward a lot of these um, ideas that partners with Pastor Troy, that brought in Recap, that created and brought in um, the ability for Metro to partner with John Ponder and Hope for Prisoners. I mean, what other police department hosts the graduation of previous offenders at their Metro headquarters? We partner our police officers with them. You know, we believe in that, um, in those partnerships. So. Yes, accountability is important. Yes, we do it. And I don't know that it matters about the leadership. Uh, to your question about Byron Williams, I was not a part of that investigation. Uh, I don't know the intricacies of it. I know that they have gone the full realm of holding him accountable. Um, and I know you asked me something else. I don't know the second part of your question. I want to make sure I answer it. Well, it was really, I think you're getting to it with the body cam issue, just trying to deal with the accountability piece, because that seems to be really the, the key question that people are asking. We they have policy in place, and what specific things are happening, because there doesn't seem to be public discipline. Uh, we're not seeing officers losing their, their positions or, or uh, facing the same type of consequences as others may face for, for similar infractions. What so, do you mean? Uh, well, we absolutely fire people, absolutely. So that, that's great to know. How does that get out to the community? How do, how do people see this? Because I, I- We do a press on it. If you pull up LVMPD and you go to our YouTube channel, you will see, we do a, we do a press release on anything. On um, If we have an in-custody death, may it be out on the street or out in the jail, we release that information with the body-worn camera. You know, if an officer does some sort of erroneous activity, uh, it's put out in the media. If an officer's arrested, we push it out immediately. We actually, a lot of times, will beat the media to even their request sending it into our PIO office because the community should know that. We don't want to sweep that under the carpet. We don't ever want to get caught not giving the community the information they need. They should know, and we are very forthcoming. I promise you this. You will not find a police department that's more forthcoming than we are with that information. As a matter of fact, they tell us all the time that we're crazy for the amount of transparency that we put forward. Uh, and to the person, people that think we lie in our reports, I, I'm sorry you feel that way because these reports are scrutinized. They go through many layers of investigation. The body-worn cameras are released. Uh, that information is all put out to the public. And yes, it's viewed through different lenses of how you guys see it, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And if our police officers do something that's not appropriate, we absolutely hold them accountable. 
and we have a discipline matrix. And if on that discipline matrix, what they did is a fireable offense, we are more than happy to uh, fire them. But here's the other catch the community should know. We have something called a citizen's review board, which is exactly what it sounds like, a citizen's review board. It's filled with and sponsored by citizens who then look at all of our investigations. They're able to take them and go with a fine tooth comb through them to put forth things that they feel are right that need to be looked into further. And we take that feedback and we do follow up on it. So also on our use of force boards, for those of you that don't know, we have citizens that sit on every use of force board. So all of our shootings, all of our things uh, that, um, that, that use force, citizens sit on it. They vote on it. They say, yes, we think it was a good use of force. No, we don't think it was a good use of force. And they're able to ask the officers questions, the supervisors questions as to why they did certain things. That's a huge progressive move that is completely transparent. Nothing hidden and nothing kept from the public. And I think that's important for them to remember. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate your honesty in answering that. I do have, uh, for those that are, are asking questions, we're going to get to all of the questions. We don't have time within the live portion of this, but no question will be ignored. Uh, we are going to, to respond and, and provide answers. So we are saving the chat and the Q&As after. We have reached the end of our time, but there are two things we want to get to before we do conclude our live. And this is a, a tweet from uh, Commissioner Justin Jones, who was a panelist last week. And he's mentioning that there were legal observers still in custody and asking about if if they could be released immediately and not do it again. So if you could speak to that. And then um, my final question is going to be to all panelists. What are some specific things that we can do to enact systemic change? And Captain, if you could, could start first with the, the legal observer question and, and tie in the other answer. I, I uh, would love to answer that for you, uh, Justin, but I have no idea. I, it's not anything that um, I'm a part of. It's, I wasn't at that protest. I don't handle when they go in and when they go out of jail. We're, we, we, don't, we only enforce the law. I don't have any, we don't have any power in how long they stay in jail. Uh, that would probably be better enacted through the judges and attorneys. Thank you. That's that's fair, and I appreciate you you answering honestly. So, just in in maybe a thirty second, and I know that's probably hard, but each of the panelists could give us one thing that you you would suggest as a systemic change or how to get to systemic change. And Jose, can we start with you? Um, sure. Uh, you know what I would say is just we all uh, we all need to continue to be involved. We all need to continue to be engaged. Um, we need to um, be able to, you know, and this, there's a lot of misinformation that gets out there. And so we really need to seek to understand and, and make sure that we're getting good information and, and finding the right places where we can get that information so that we can all come together and have honest conversations about how we really look at needing to address the system that exists and creating a better place for everybody. So, uh, you know, communication, honesty, um, and, 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 you know, finding the right information, the correct information, so that we can do the things that we need to do as, as we continue to move forward as a community. Thank you. Alex. Yeah, um, I think the first uh, level is to really vote. Your, your vote locally means a lot, um, more than maybe even a national level, in my opinion. Um, two, I think it's important for everyone to use their voices and to hold people accountable. Um, just to kind of circle back to the beginning of our discussion, um, it was mentioned that um, 
individuals were looking to try to get one of the guys, and I think that feeds into the good old boys mentality of the police department. Um, and obviously, that's not acceptable because we can look at the local um, deaths and killings by police brutality here. And so, everyone needs to continue to raise their voices, speak for what's right, and actually be the movement. Wonderful. And Captain Larkin. So. Uh, what I'll say in, in closing is we need you, community. Those of you out there are listening, we need you. We need you involved. Uh, we need you to come to our police department and take part in our functions. We open our door to you. Every Tuesday, you know, uh, before COVID, our police departments, every single substation opens their doors and invites the community to come in and give feedback. You know, I had the privilege of being the captain of Summerlin Area Command. Before that, I was in Northwest, and we had sometimes upwards of 200 people that would come in. And we hear you, we hear your concerns, and, and you have every right to have them. We want you to have a voice, and not just a voice, but we want you to have a voice and have you feel heard. Uh, I saw people asking, how do you get on the use of force board? How do you get on the MAC board? Uh, there's links on our website, lvmpd.com. Uh, there's an application process. And then here's the other thing. We have a very robust Citizens Academy and a Hispanic Citizens Academy that's taught in Spanish, because we're trying to diversify and bring in the community. And it, they are really powerful programs that give you insight into all the workings of our agency. And here's the other thing, ride-alongs, come ride with us, come see firsthand, come understand what we go through on a daily basis and, and give us feedback. You know, it's really, it's a learning situation on both sides. Uh, we have events all the time and we want you, we want your feedback. And follow us on social media, give your feedback and always call with questions. Uh, I get tons of emails every week with feedback from the community, and I take it personal. I take this crime that happens in my area personal, and I know that all the other area command captains do as well, because this is what we do. We are here to bring the community into our fold, learn from you, and improve ourselves. So I just want to say thank you for allowing us to have a voice tonight. Thank you for allowing us to share some of the things that we're doing, and thank you for your feedback. I'm going to take it and push it forward to my chief, and hopefully you guys will see some changes that you'll be proud of on your police department and within your community. Well, thank you for that. To all of our panelists, thank you so much for your honesty, your transparency, your courage to have this conversation. There's a lot more we could get into, and unfortunately, time just does not allow. But I do want to thank those that have partnered with us in this endeavor, uh, the Human Rights Campaign, uh, Faith Organizing Alliance, ADL, City of Las Vegas Mayor's Faith Initiative, the Episcopal Diocese of Nevada, Nevada Minority Health and Equity Coalition, Coalition the Interfaith Council of Southern Nevada, Moonrich Group in collaboration with the Moonrich Foundation, Dr. Gard Jameson and the Jameson Foundation. Thank you all for your support of this. I'd like to give the, the last closing remarks in just 30 seconds, if we could, to Reverend Stacy. Well, I just want to thank everybody once again for being here and being open to such um, a robust conversation. And it's not easy, but it starts with dialogue. It's it's um, it's it's something that has to happen. And we're, we we um, we have learned a lot about what's gone on, and there's much uh, much work to still be done. And I'm just grateful for each and every person. So let's just make sure that we continue the dialogue. All right, and we'll leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Remember, next week, same time, same place, invite all of your colleagues, family, friends to join the conversation next week. We'll see you then.